The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, September 5th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, we'll get our first peek of which projects are being proposed in Madison's next budget. Medicaid unwinding means that some children are getting kicked off their coverage. The investigation into a violent attack on a UW student continues. And in the second half of the show, peace activists welcome an anti-nuke tour shop in Milwaukee. Animal rehabilitators commune with crows, and we take an end-of-summer hike at Cherokee Marsh. All these stories and more on tonight's news. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Multiple top Wisconsin Democrats don't appear to have gotten sick after a recent visit to Madison by the First Lady. Jill Biden tested positive for COVID-19 yesterday, her office says, and is experiencing minor symptoms. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin and Governor Tony Evers joined Biden at multiple events during her visit last week. Spokespeople for both told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that they are currently symptom-free. Evers has tested negative and Baldwin plans to test tomorrow, the paper reports. The news comes during a notable ride in COVID-19 hospitalizations in several parts of the country, including in Wisconsin. The state's Judiciary Disciplinary Panel dismissed several complaints against Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz over comments she made during her campaign, the Associated Press reports. Today, Protasiewicz released a letter she received in May from the Wisconsin Judicial Commission informing her they were rejecting ethics complaints they had received about her statements. The disclosure is a blow to Republican state lawmakers who have been arguing her remarks about legislative redistricting could be grounds for impeachment. During the campaign, Protasiewicz called Republican-drawn maps, quote, rigged. The court is likely to hear a challenge to the maps in the near future. Protasiewicz, a liberal backed by Democrats, won her seat in April and flipped the ideological balance of the court when she was sworn in last month. A new audit of WIDIC, Wisconsin State Economic Development Agency, says its performance has slipped over the past three years, the Associated Press reports. This assessment, released last week by the Legislative Audit Bureau, includes a list of issues related to the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation's operations since 2020. They include WIDIC awarding $50,000 in development grants to ineligible recipients, and a failure to recoup almost $65,000 in grants when promised jobs didn't materialize. The review also found the agency failed to post required public meeting records and didn't update policies to reflect changes to state laws. WIDIC has faced chronic problems since Republicans created the quasi-public development agency in 2011. The investigation into the violent assault of a UW-Madison student just a block away from the WORT studios continues. Madison police are still asking the public for surveillance video from the area of the attack near the intersection of West Wilson and Bedford Streets. A UW-Madison student in her 20s was severely beaten around 3 a.m. early Sunday morning and was taken to the hospital with life-threatening injuries. An update from the police department this afternoon says the woman is expected to survive. The MPD tells WRT today that officers are continuing extra patrols in the area at all hours, and they're encouraging residents who need to walk at night to walk in groups or pairs. Students, staff, and visitors at UW-Madison can use the campus SafeWalk program, which provides a walking buddy through the evening until 1 a.m. However, the coverage map of the free campus ends several blocks from the location of the attack. 
While some Madison students headed back to school last Friday, most started school today. Back to school is already causing a headache for families after last-minute transportation changes for K-12 students were announced by the district last night as the district shifts to a new busing provider. The Madison Metropolitan School District informed families late last night of best schedule changes, with some schools running behind for morning and afternoon pickup. It's an early stumble for the district's new contractor. First Student Inc., which replaced Badger Bus after that company's contract ended, attributed the delays to a driver shortage. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that a 15-20% to 20% of school bus driver positions remain unfilled as students head back to school. That's likely due to a combination of factors, including regulatory hurdles and an aging workforce. Madison Teachers, Inc., the union for MMSD teachers and staff, wrote in an email to the Capital Times that they're disappointed that the new transportation company has not lived up to promises made during the bidding and selection process. A nonprofit that distributes free bikes to kids and families is nearing a milestone. 10,000 bikes provided to the community, reports Madison Magazine. The org Free Bikes for Kids has been giving away bikes to community members in need since 2008. And each bike comes fully tuned up with a free helmet, lock set of lights, and sometimes a bike pump. The milestone is fitting for a city that loves to bike. Madison is one of only five cities with a platinum bicycle community designation from the League of American Bicyclists. UW-Madison says it is investigating the collapse of a pier yesterday at the Memorial Union Terrace. A university press release says between 60 and 80 people were on the pier in Lake Mendota when a section fell into the water. One person was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries, and five others were treated for minor injuries on site, according to UW. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that it's not the first time a pier has collapsed at the terrace. A similar structure at the same location fell during a sailing race in 2005, according to the paper. About 20 people were on it at the time, but nobody was injured. And now on to today's top stories. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway unveiled the first of her 2024 budget proposals this morning. A key aim of the proposal? Catalyzing the South Madison Renaissance. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. Standing inside the Black Business Hub today, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced her over $266 million capital budget proposal for 2024. Combined with the six-year capital improvement plan also announced this morning, the proposals guide major projects like infrastructure and new construction. Alongside the operating budget, the capital budget and six-year improvement plan drives the city's fiscal planning for the next year. The main project highlighted in this morning's announcement? Funding for redevelopment and affordable housing on Madison's south side. Today's venue, the Black Business Hub, broke ground more than a year ago and is still under construction. It's one example, the mayor says, of the opportunity to transform parts of the South Side to meet community needs. Over the past few years, the city has worked with the South Madison community to establish a vision and a plan for South Madison. And with the capital budget that I am introducing today, we are taking some important steps towards implementing that vision. Specifically, money will be allotted to develop the area in a way that's affordable for residents. They plan to invest $24 million in South Madison for new housing and an expanded public health clinic. Over the next six years, they plan to invest $94.5 million into the Affordable Housing Fund. 
we will be spending over $27 million to create new housing, a new fire station, and a new public health clinic. Up at the Triangle, on the other end of Park Street, uh, we are investing $11 million to create 1,200 new units of housing. And together, these projects will leverage millions in federal and state tax credits. As Madison's population grows, so will the need for affordable housing. Updated numbers from earlier this summer say that the city will add 115,000 residents by 2050. A revamped public transit system is another project that looks to accommodate a larger population. The east-west bus rapid transit line is already underway, and the north-south line may break ground as soon as next year. The north-south line will travel down Park Street, and its total projected cost is almost $144 million. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that BRT will improve public transit for communities in need. It represents a 120% increase in access for the Latinx community, a 92% increase in access for the black community, and a 90% increase for low-income residents of Madison. Other projects of note, $5 million would be slated to develop a treatment plan at a north side well that's been shut down for four years due to PFAS contamination. Over $47 million would be headed to reconstruct bridges, roadways, and paths along John Nolan Drive using a combination of federal, state, and local funding. And over $22 million would be used to update the stormwater system across the city, a critical piece of infrastructure to combat flooding. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that federal investment has been instrumental in funding the city's upcoming projects. She says that efforts from President Biden and Senator Tammy Baldwin to pass several acts including the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Federal Inflation Reduction Act, have counterbalanced shortfalls in shared revenue to Madison from the state budget. Unfortunately, the city is held back by a state legislature that does not believe in returning to Madison a fair portion of what our city's residents provide to the state in sales and income taxes. After decades of declining state aid, we had hoped that a historic state budget surplus would result in increased support for the state's fastest growing city. Unfortunately, Madison received an increase of less than 1% of our total budget. So the state is not going to help. The Federal Inflation Reduction Act would provide up to $13 million in tax credits so the city can invest in climate infrastructure. Federal funding would also help move forward tentative plans to bring an Amtrak passenger railway into Madison. This capital budget and the six-year capital improvement plan will be introduced at tonight's Common Council meeting. The mayor's operating budget proposal is expected to be released next month. That's the budget that deals with day-to-day -day expenses, like services, staffing, and programs. City leaders will spend the next few months hashing out both spending plans, and alders can propose amendments to the budgets. Both the capital and operating budgets are slated to be finalized in mid-November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Pandemic-related continuous coverage for Medicaid recipients has ended. That means Wisconsin, like other states, is disenrolling people, forcing them to re-enroll to determine if they still qualify. Policy experts encourage parents to check their children's coverage because some are being dropped even though they are still eligible. Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. As Wisconsin kids head back to school, families who rely on Medicaid are reminded to ensure their children still have health insurance. States are redetermining people's eligibility after pandemic rules officially ended in May. 
The temporary provision automatically kept recipients enrolled, but now that it's expired, many children are being dropped from the rolls as their families lose coverage. William Park Sutherland of the Wisconsin-based policy group Kids Forward says the situation has affected at least 32,000 kids across the state. He says it's bad timing with a new school year here. Kids that have stable access to health insurance are more likely to do better in school. They're more likely to be employed as adults. They're um, less likely to visit the emergency room. He says even if parents no longer think they're eligible because of a boost in their household income, there's a good chance their kids still qualify with the income limits being different for children. Families with questions are urged to contact their regional income maintenance office, which can be found on the State Department of Health Services website. They also can try the My Access mobile app. Joan Elker with the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families says it's worrisome that many of the Medicaid losses aren't because the state determines someone isn't eligible, but because many haven't gone through the renewal process. We're in this unprecedented historic situation where states that are generally understaffed have to process eligibility checks for everybody on the program, and that includes half the children in the country. So. So this is a massive undertaking. National estimates have shown that three out of four children who lose Medicaid coverage are likely still eligible. And these policy experts say there are common reasons why families have a hard time keeping up with their enrollment. That includes renewal letters being sent to an old address after a recent move or transportation and technology barriers, especially in rural areas. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Madison Justice Team has recently been in the news for their work in supporting people post-incarceration. Johnny Walton, CEO of me to we is one of the partners. He spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks about his efforts to counsel people to a better future. The Cap Times reported earlier today on a new team that helps folks transition back to civilian life following incarceration. Madison Justice Team is an all-volunteer organization and offers a number of services both before and after release. Johnny Walton, who was formerly incarcerated, is the CEO at me to we LLC. me to we has partnered with Madison Justice Team to continue their coaching services for formerly incarcerated people. He's on the phone with me now. Thank you for joining me, Johnny. Hello, Faith. Thank you for having me. Diving right in, can you walk me through some of the major barriers that people face following release from prison or jail? One of the major issues that I see is most people are still stuck in their belief patterns. The, I can't have this, I won't have this, that life just won't work out for them. It's unsticking the stuck parts that where people are telling themselves, that they have to go back to their old lifestyles. And it's all based on what you believe. Whatever you believe and think, it'll, it'll be real to you. You know, so if you're having a hard time finding a job or housing, then those are some things that could actually take a person back into those stages of criminal activity. The difficult part for me dealing with people that are newly released would have to be the, the stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about how they should show up in the world. 
my main role is just helping them to, to understand that they can. And maybe it might not be with taking a big step, a gigantic step, but if we could break the goal down into baby goals and let's, let's accomplish And those actually feel just as good as accomplishing the major goal. So when I'm dealing with somebody that's incarcerated, first of all, I know I have to first understand, and we all should really understand this just as human beings, that we're all being the best people we know how to be. So you provide counseling. Can I ask, do you have like a a therapist license or anything like that? No, I just have my coaching certification through the International Coaching Federation, the ICF. So I don't actually do therapy. What I do is I teach people about the levels of energy. I give them an energy assessment. And the assessment actually shows the client what level of energy they're in under a stressor and what level of energy they're in when they're not. And then I provide them with an app. It was provided to me by IPEC, which is the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. And the app is called Scope. And what the client does is, whether they're in school or a CEO or a, 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 a parolee getting out of prison, you go on and you answer a few questions. And from those questions, the app will tell you what level of energy you are at right then and there. Because if you can't identify it, you won't change it. You won't raise it. You won't be conscious. You're offering what sounds like emotional coaching. And this, you would say, helps address the recidivism rate, just helps people avoid reoffending by sort of addressing more internal issues. So what it does is it's like a door that opens that allows you to not just think about me. You know, I'm not just thinking about myself anymore. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about my children. I'm thinking about five years away from now where I want to be and the steps that I would like to take to get there, you know, and it takes a lot more than coaching. That's why we've got this huge group together because the coaching works, but what about housing, you know, and healthcare and education, you know, so I can coach you, but if the, if the, if the opportunity is out of reach, then I'm coaching you in, 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 in a circle. I'm coaching you in a circle. I'm coaching you to say, hey, you can do this. And then when you go out there, it's not there, you know? So that's why we've got the, 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 UW Odyssey program for education. We've got the Black Men Coalition with Corey Mariano for housing and and jobs and what they do with transportation and and they're building a facility now off of Highway 19 or 151. And what it's going to do, it's going to it's going to be a, a temporary place for people to transition from prison into home ownership. But what I'm the main thing that I push to the justice team is you can't just give people stuff. You can't just give people stuff. You can't just build a bigger jail with a bigger gym and a bigger library, and people will still use those things the way that they did when they were in a free world unless you change my thinking. If you don't change my thinking, then you, don't, you, you can't just give me a house. You can't just give me a million dollars, you know, because I'll still use it the way I believe that I should before before you gave it to me because my thoughts, my thought pattern hasn't changed. In these contexts, we often hear the term justice impacted. So that refers to people who have had any interaction with the court system. That can mean adolescents who have served time or the the families of people who have been incarcerated. Can I ask, um, when it comes to this Madison justice team, do you have an idea of how many people working there are justice impacted individuals? 
for sure there are four people that are a part of the group that have been justice impacted. For sure. At least four. As a matter of fact, six now that I think about it, because we've got people from Expo that are a part of the group. And um though I think everybody with Expo is was previously incarcerated for something, doing the good work that they wish they would have had. <laughs> Most majority of them, um, Carl Fields out of Milwaukee and uh Latoya Greer and Corey Mariano with the Black Men's Coalition of Dane County, uh James Morgan and me myself. Yeah, there's a there's a few people that have that have been and I don't I don't think the the group would work without it. <laughs> because we know what we really need, you know? The people who have been directly impacted and are paying attention, we know what we really need. Um Corey stepped up and he and he and he started this program and, and got so many people jobs and he's providing transportation. He's getting a building built. He's already providing some form of housing now, but now he's going to be able to do so much more and working with Habitat for Humanity to get these people in to become homeowners. So that's one thing he saw, you know, and, 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 and what I saw was, Hey, let's correct our thinking. You know, let's try to correct our thinking. I don't know about, um, I don't know about everybody uh and their uh previous interactions with the justice system. But I do know we've got some really good people. Um Tom Pop from the playing field is in there. And like I said, their work with the youth and, and mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices, it's amazing. It's amazing. I've actually been down to experience it, you know, with the playing field outside of the justice team. I, I was invited to come down and see where they work and how they work and 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 it's it's awesome. I was a part of Emily Auerbach's UW Odyssey program. I graduated in 2017. I love what she's doing. <laughs> you know, I feel like all of these are, are tools that should be given to these to these men and women who are dealing with the justice system. All of these are tools to be given to these men and women that maybe not are not directly impacted, but maybe have a mother or a father who is impacted. In the immediate future, what is next for the Madison Justice Team and for me to me? I think what's next is our own facilities, our own facilities and people who would be sentenced to house arrest or sentenced to a, a drug rehabilitation center. Same thing will go for us. They could be sentenced to the Madison Justice Team. And that's what we're working on now is, is the legislation and, and all of the statutes and codes that we need to abide by and follow. We were actually told that we could build on on the land of a of one of the prisons that are here now, but we don't want to do that. <laughs> we want we would like our own space. Thank you again for speaking with me, Johnny. Thank you for wanting to speak with me. That was Johnny Walton, CEO at Madison's Me to We LLC. They support formerly incarcerated folks in the area and are now partnered with the Madison Justice Team. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. 
The first sailboat to carry out a nonviolent direct action against nuclear weapons is nearing the end of a year-long 11,000-mile voyage to raise awareness about the threat of nuclear war. The Golden Rule docked in Milwaukee over Labor Day weekend. WORT contributor Gil Halstead joined members of the Milwaukee, Minneapolis, and Madison chapters of Veterans for Peace on Saturday to welcome the sailboat's crew and celebrate its historic journey. The 30-foot Golden Rule took its maiden voyage in 1958, heading out from Honolulu with the goal of sailing into the atomic test zone near the Marshall Islands. U.S. authorities turned them back and imprisoned the crew of Quaker activists. The aborted journey prompted a second ship, the Phoenix of Hiroshima, to follow the Golden Rule's example, and in June of 1958, it sailed into the test site near the Bikini Atoll, where that crew was arrested. But the protests against nuclear testing, begun by the Golden Rule, increased and likely played a role in encouraging the signing of the Limited Test Ban Treaty signed by the U.S., Britain, and the Soviet Union in 1963. Fifty-nine years later, September of 2022, the most recent voyage began in Minneapolis, down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, around the southern tip of Florida with a stop in Cuba, up the Atlantic coast and back to the Great Lakes via the St. Lawrence Seaway with dozens of stops to promote nuclear disarmament in communities where it docked along the way. Its captain for most of the voyage has been native Hawaiian Kiko Johnston Kitazawa. Standing on the deck of the Golden Rule in Milwaukee on Saturday with a stiff breeze blowing off Lake Michigan, he told me why he joined the project. I'm serving on this boat because from teenage time I became interested in preventing another war or another Hiroshima. And then they came sailing into my home port and said, do you know any people who would be interested in crewing or captaining on a nuclear disarmament peace education boat? Yes, thank you. So I lined them up with six crew members through the Hawaiian Islands and then um, when the chance came, they asked me to captain, I did. Kitazawa captained the ship across the Pacific to San Francisco, and from there, the Golden Rule was loaded onto a truck and taken to Minneapolis. Helen Jacquard has been the project manager of the voyage since 2015 when the planning of the voyage began. She says there was one incident that stands out for her during the year-long voyage when the ship made a stop in New York. The Mexican mission to the United Nations invited the Golden Rule team, Veterans for Peace leaders, and 13 other missions came for a two-hour meeting to talk about nuclear disarmament. And the other missions were very happy to be talking about, you know, to people that were not just of the State Department, who's their normal contact. And that was very moving, but then, right after that, we went over and met with the ambassador of the Marshall Islands, and she gave us two hours of her time to talk about what's going on right now with the Compact of Free Association, where it defines how Marshallese can come and work in the United States, and uh, what aid we give them, things like that. And so she talked about that. She talked about that there are a lot of U.S. military veterans that are Marshallese, but on the Marshall Islands there's no VA clinic, even though they do qualify for VA, VA care. And of course the contamination, the radiological contamination, produces um, the fact that, you know, there's a very big need for cancer care, but there are no 
chemotherapy facilities in the Marshall Islands. So they have to come to the United States, which is a huge burden. You know, it's about $1,200 for a plane ticket, one way. So, um, you know, we're, we're putting a huge burden on people that is unreasonable. Connections with the Pacific Islanders who were victims of the atomic testing in the 1950s actually took place early in the voyage of the Golden Rule at a stop on the Mississippi in Dubuque, Iowa, where the ship was met by hundreds of Marshall Islanders who had been displaced by the atomic tests in the ocean near their island home. They held a special ceremony for the crew, including traditional Marshall Island food, music, and dance presentations. They also told stories about family members who suffered from radiation-induced cancers caused by the fallout from the testing. That's the event during the voyage that stands out for ship captain Kitazawa. They displaced the people, and they told them, you can bar your island and we'll give it back, but it was too irradiated, so they had to go into exile in Hawaii and California. A lot of them are living in um, Dubuque because the Hormel Spam factory good jobs and good health care. So when we sailed in there, there were like three or four hundred people to welcome us, to say thank you for trying to save our islands from. That was really beautiful. The Golden Rule also stopped in Washington, D.C. Project manager Helen Jacquard says the experience there, where the crew lobbied Congress to take more aggressive steps to ban nuclear weapons, gave her some hope for the future. I'd never walked the halls of Congress before. But the Veterans for Peace Nuclear Abolition Working Group created their own nuclear posture review in contrast to the presidential one, which is very aggressive, first use in all kinds of different situations. And the Veterans for Peace one analyzes the opportunities for peace between the United States and all of the other nuclear armed countries and Iran. And what we found was that there are a lot of missed opportunities where we could understand the needs of other countries and implement a, a treaty that would feel, make both fun countries feel much safer and allow us to disarm. So we passed that out to every House and Senate member on the Hill. It was great. The disarmament message that the Golden Rule brought to all the communities it stopped at was warmly received. According to Captain Kitazawa, there was very little pushback from people defending the use of nuclear weapons. Nobody pushed back against our message, you know? Yeah, so I think it's a mistake to think that because someone is conservative or of a certain ethnic group or of a certain economic status that they're automatically going to be against getting rid of nuclear weapons. I think there's a large agreement that nuclear weapons are not a good thing. The closest I came to a pushback are people saying, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, It's like skepticism, right? Maybe, or they'll go, oh, good luck with that, which of course we choose to take as good luck with that. <laughs> Kitazawa says he can only think of one incident at a stop on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan where anybody seemed to push back against the message of disarmament. You know, there were two guys. It was when we had one guy from a waterfront bar yelled, we like our nukes. <laughs> and another guy yelled, nuke China. But, you know, I wouldn't consider those carefully considered <laughs> opinions. Maybe it was 
alcohol related or something. And we have a bumper sticker in Hawaii that says, next time wave at me with all your fingers. <laughs> and so if we get that, instead of going, <laughs> you know, we're like, okay, thank you, you know. <laughs> Bringing public attention to the current increase in the threat of nuclear war was the central goal of the Golden Rules voyage. Kitazawa says the arms race between the existing nuclear powers is accelerating. And at each of their ports of call, one of the crew's talking points was the importance of abiding by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. There's another element to the Non-Proliferation Treaty that's rarely brought up, but part of that is the countries that have them agree to engage in continuing good faith efforts to reduce or eliminate their quantities. And the time that happened was in about 1990, the U.S. and the USSR had about 36,000 of them, and there were 3,000 new ones every year. And they brought that down to about eight or 9,000 each and no new ones for about 30 years. And so everybody thought the problem solved and stopped thinking about it. But the last six or seven years, people are really backsliding on that. And the big nuclear powers are like, we're gonna make bigger and better and faster and more powerful. It's like, with nuclear weapons, better is, better is worse. Project manager Helen Jacquard says that will be the message the ship carries during three more stops over the next week. Uh, So we'll go to Racine and then across the lake to St. Joseph, back across the lake to Chicago. And when we're done there with our events, we'll go back up to Racine and take off the masts and prepare for a truck to come and take her away back to California, our home port. Jacquard says there are tentative plans to sail the ship up the coast of the Pacific and the Northwest next year. For WORT News, I'm Gil Halstead. Last week on Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg discussed the rise of West Nile virus in Wisconsin. Now she's doing a deep dive into the lives of crows, one of the virus's biggest local casualties. We'll hear about how crows communicate and socialize, and Jackie shares an original poem. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I thought we'd talk about the American crow. And I know I've mentioned crows in a few of our last segments here on WORT, but I wanted to give them a special shout out. And the reason for that is because it's been a really sad summer for crows. And I feel bad for the crows. Not just crows, I'm sure it's a lot of other birds too, but I know we've talked about West Nile virus and that we've seen so many more crows this year than we have in the past. And it's just, it's one of those times where you feel sorry for all of the birds that are potentially contracting the virus from mosquito bites and corvids which are the crows, the ravens, the blue jays in our area here in Wisconsin are highly susceptible to it and their mortality rate is incredibly high. So I wanted to share a self-written poem about crows that I actually wrote for our uh, DCHS Paw Prints newsletter. So if you're not a member of the Dane County Humane Society, you probably don't get this. It's a print version of like a newsletter with a kind of an update with our program numbers and Dane County Humane Society's goals and fun stories called Family Tales. So if you look it up on our website at www.giveshelter.org, you can sign up to be a member. But I'm going to read my ode to crows. So yes, this is original poetry from yours truly. So an ode to crows. 
Congregating corvids often act exhorted by urging on their kindred with loud and boisterous noises. Caw, 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 says the crow, and craw, 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 says the raven. Craw, caw, caw, and a rattle, rattle, click. Are these rookery sounds or a rap limerick? Melding in their murders, showing strength in numbers, they chase away the dangers while yelling at the strangers. Here we are, but go away, is what we humans feel, they say. But how crows think we can't define, they could be saying, hey, this is mine. Which thou, Corvus, merit admiration? Is it crows or jays or coughs or ravens? Well, crows, of course, they are bestowed with our vote as we voice this ode. So there you go, my kind of terrible poetry, which I actually thought was a lot of fun. I wrote that for a piece because we had a wonderful crow last winter that we rehabilitated successfully and released after it had a shoulder girdle fracture. And we got to release it on the Humane Society property and I still see him every once in a while, so it's really cool. But I did want to share a little more information about crows because I don't think we give them enough appreciation. And just knowing that they're going through such a hard time this summer, I'm going to take some of this information from the Animal Diversity Web. If you've never checked this out, it is actually super fun. It's part of the University of Michigan Zoology program, so they have a museum of zoology there. And they've put together a really nice outline, and I like it. Um, I know there's a lot of different ones out there, different databases for wildlife, but I personally like this one a lot. Um, this one is the animaldiversity.org, and if you look up different species, they will give you a nice outline of where they're located, what their habitats are like, what kind of foods they eat, what do they look like, and even some really nice stats about their size and how many eggs they have, timing of migration, that kind of stuff. And so I really, really like it. There is, of course, Birds of North America. There's also, you know, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But this one just has a really nice outline that's easy to follow with the eye. And so if you're ever curious about a species and want to look up some facts about them, check this one out. I think it's a really great one. So shout out to University of Michigan. So yeah, crows are everywhere. They're in North America mostly. So from Canada down to the southern part of the U.S. for the most part. And they are known to be more of an urban bird because they're very flexible. They can kind of go anywhere and live in any type of habitat, including around people's houses. So if you have a neighborhood full of crows, you've probably heard them yelling a lot, which is why I made my ode to crows about that. They are actually really strong communicators. So I think the coolest thing about crows is that they actually talk to each other and they have different signals and sounds for different animals, even when it comes to defending. So territories and dangers and thinking about what predators are nearby, they actually have different sounds to tell their groups, different communication styles about what is a dangerous area. Hey, go away from that person or that car or whatever looks funny. You should check out some of the studies they did at the University of Washington. Um, they're kind of fun. They tested a lot of different masks and hats and other things with crows. That's John Marsluff and his research about crows and crow intelligence. Yeah, they seem to not recognize everybody if you're wearing a mask that disguises yourself. Anyways, that's a whole nother radio segment. But our crows are known to hold funerals for each other. So if a crow passes away, other crows may flock to the area and start talking to each other about it. Researchers think that maybe they're trying to communicate about a potential danger in an area. Maybe they're commiserating over the death of a family member. They also have, you know, a lot of babies throughout the year. But I think the most fascinating thing that I've read about crows is that they don't always have offspring that successfully go on to breed and have their own babies. They might actually be helper crows. So they might have babies and young, and those young will stay in their natal area, which is like where they were born. 
And they might be semi-partial migrants and kind of fly, you know, somewhat south, but they tend to stay around their natal area. And then the next breeding season, those babies help their parents again to have another brood. I mean, there's not really any benefit for those birds except to be a helper, but it's just part of the crow strategy. I think that's really neat. I don't know that there's too many other birds out there that do that. Um, I know that there are primates that do, and obviously, of course, people do that. That one was just a fascinating one for me in terms of a fun fact. Otherwise, the other coolest thing is that they'll eat pretty much anything. So they eat birds, mammals, amphibians, the french fries out of your garbage cans. It's not necessarily the best food, but they'll definitely prefer meats like worms and fruits. And they actually hunt a lot of baby rabbits in the summers. But that is also part of their natural food source. So really, I just, you know, I wanted to share a couple of those fun facts. Crows are everywhere, like I said, and I just I think that there's some cool and fascinating parts about them that people don't really know or get to hear about. You know, we've had a lot of them at the Wildlife Center as rehabilitators. We get to work with them every day. And so sometimes I think we take that for granted. But for the folks that see them in their neighborhood and think, oh, these are such a nuisance bird, maybe do a little research on them. I think I really started to appreciate crows the more that I learned about them and how amazing they are with the different diverse strategies that they use to survive in the wild. So I hope you appreciate crows as much as I do, and I hope you enjoyed this segment and my ode to crows. Otherwise, give us a call if you have any questions about wildlife. Our phone number is 608-287-3235, and otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We're continuing our look back at the best of the summer's Trail Tuesday series. Tonight we revisit WORT contributor Reed Kamai's trek through the Cherokee Marsh Conservation Park, where he found some great views of the Yahara River but needed plenty of bug spray. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week we stay along the Yahara River and enjoy a vivid glimpse of it while also navigating through shady paths, mounds, and prairies. In the northern part of Madison, this is Cherokee Marsh Conservation Park. This park has three sections to it, titled North, South, and Mendota. For this tour, I took to the north portion, which itself takes up nearly a thousand acres. Its main entrance is at the north end of North Sherman Avenue, whose slight lollipop at the end provides convenient parking. The road stretches as far south as the Isthmus and runs next to the Duck Pond, the home stadium of the Madison Mallards. The last half mile before Cherokee Marsh is unpaved. My adventure through this park began before I even got out of the car, as the parking lot was very buggy and bugs of all kinds flew around my car. A large fly even camped itself out on the underside of the driver's side mirror for a good minute before flying off. Mary Binkley, board member of the organization Friends of Cherokee Marsh, says that the prevalence of insects is expected where there is vegetation and is to the overall benefit of the habitat. It gives them food, it gives them shelter, and in an urban environment, that is not available. So the bugs are actually a good thing, even if they're not pleasant to us, because they provide food for everything bigger than they are. Lots of birds, lots of small animals. Um, all the insects eat each other, you know, the big ones eat the little ones and on down the line. So it's a sign of a, a good environment. Good shelter, good food, good place to grow up. That's why there's so many bugs. Unfortunately, that positive perspective was not on my mind in the car surrounded by bugs. 
When I eventually stepped out of the car, I knew I needed to make it quick. Ready? One, two, three. Right. There. There is a picnic table and a shelter with bathrooms at the entrance of the park. The trails can then be accessed just past a gate near there that can be stepped over, under, or around. There are many different paths through this hotbed of nature. In fact, just past the gate is a four-way intersection. We'll touch on every direction throughout this segment, but we start by going straight on the river path. This splits off once again just a few hundred feet later. We'll keep to the left to stay on the river path. We're greeted with a cacophony of bird calls. Take a listen and see how many birds you can identify. So many birds, so many different kinds of birds in this kind of area. It's just really wonderful to hear. Also makes me wonder what they're talking about to each other. Off to the right, you can even see some downed trees on which moss has grown. Along the river trail, you will see a boulder commemorating one of two conical mounds. These were the sites of hunting groups that would gather, along with burial grounds by members of the Ho-Chunk Nation. The City of Madison's Parks Division states that the hunting groups dated back to the 19th century, though the boulder plaque references the years 0 to 400 AD. Keep going, and just before the river, you'll eventually reach a steel walkway. And this is where you'll be able to see the Yahara River. You get a brilliant 180 degree view and can see far away down the river in both directions. We are just over a mile and a half from the airport, which likely explains the airplane noises in the background. In any case, I turned around and headed back in the direction I came. My next order of business was to explore the Aspen Loop I mentioned earlier. It's a short and sweet alternate route back towards our starting point and contains an outlet to another loop on the trail, the Woodpecker Loop. That is nearly a mile long in itself. I took greater interest, though, in the Overlook Loop further north and so stayed on the Aspen Trail to get there. Now is a good time to note that there are signs with a map of the trails situated throughout the conservation park. This was very helpful for me in navigating. The bug sadly did not go away. A fly hung onto a sleeve of my shirt while I was gathering ambient audio. Soon thereafter, we find ourselves back at the park entrance, but there's much more to come. Back at the four-way intersection, we take the right turn to walk along the Bluebird Loop. The loop, much like the rest of the park, sure lives up to its name. We quickly reach another four-way intersection. Turning left takes you back towards where we were previously. Turning right keeps you on the Bluebird Loop. We'll stay straight to take to the Overlook Trail. Get ready for some hills soon. I was soon able to find out what they mean by Overlook. Uh, but yeah, so we're coming around here, and then there's this left turn, which I think takes you... Oh, look at that. Okay, so there's like a deck somewhere. So we're going to be able to go up onto the deck and get a nice look of the, of the river. So let's turn left here and do that. There is also a steel landing at ground level to be able to look out to the river. I took it in from both spots. Back onto the trail, we keep going and come across another fork. Continuing straight takes you a short while longer to the pier which serves as a dock for taking canoes and kayaks out onto the river. I instead turned right. Here now is the climb I referenced earlier. It's a somewhat steep hill that takes you about 65 feet higher in elevation. Watch your step, especially in the early stages because there are tree stumps and wood blocks that you'll have to step over. The apex of this climb is the top of the mound, another burial area. Shortly after the apex is another overlook spot. 
not out to the river, but rather to one of the several prairies in this park. The views are breathtaking. There are two paths you can take. You can go straight to walk around the prairie and check out a small pond, or you can turn right to take a shortcut to the other side. I wanted to see the pond, and so I headed straight. This path is a grassy one with fields of reeds to either side of you. It runs downhill, especially at first, and bends to the right after a short while. You can see off into the distance towards the east as well as the bend occurs, in what is a stunning view. Near the pond, there is a sign alerting visitors to a bird that is nesting in the vicinity. The pond itself, known as Frog Pond, is very small, and while there was plenty to take in, there were no frogs to be seen or even heard. Continuing along the overlook path, you eventually end up back at the Bluebird Loop. If you're up for more of a walk, continue straight to pass Lou's Pond on your left. This will take you to the Woodpecker Path I mentioned earlier. If not, you can turn right here or at the next opportunity to head back to the parking lot, concluding a journey loaded with views of prairies and bodies of water alike. Next Tuesday is the 4th of July, so there will be no Trail Tuesday that day. Join us the following Tuesday then for the next edition. For now, reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Camon. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John K. Wilson. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gail Halstead, and Reed Kamai. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News podcast, and you can subscribe wherever you keep up with podcasts.